Hello and welcome to The Check-In. My name is David Catabaugh. I am your host for today's show, and I'm checking in from Washington, D.C., excited for this conversation. We have a small group with us today. We have Sharon. Sharon, where are you checking in from? I'm also in Washington, D.C., but a few miles from you this time. Jack, where are you checking in from? Checking in from my home in Jaffa. And Greg, where are you checking in from? I'm in rural County Cork, Ireland. Oh, what are you doing in Ireland? Uh, looking after my elderly dad while my um, brother and his family are traveling. Amazing. Well, we have uh, an important conversation to have today. We're really excited um, for what we're going to be talking about. And I think for our American audience, it'll be really pertinent. Um, today's conversation is going to focus on the U.S.'s role, specifically in creating space for peace in Israel-Palestine, particularly around the protection of human rights. So we're going to talk a little bit about the killing of journalist Shireen Abu Akhla and Biden's upcoming visit to the Middle East. He'll be visiting um, both Israel-Palestine and Saudi Arabia. But let's start with a little background. So Jack, tell us, who is Shireen Abu Akhla? So Shireen is an esteemed um, Palestinian-American journalist that many know around the region. So I grew up watching Shireen on Al Jazeera, um, and who had been reporting on the conflict in Israel-Palestine for decades, um, becoming kind of a national icon for many Palestinians and many Arabs around the region, around the Middle East. Um, she grew in prominence around the invasion of the Iraq War in 2003, um, and even some years before that, uh, during the second, the second Intifada. So there were these big events that she reported on um, from the region, across the region. So she was very well known for Palestinians especially, but Arab, Arab public generally. Shireen, what happened to Shireen back in May? So she was reporting on a raid by the Israeli Defense Forces, or the IDF, um, in the West Bank city of Jenin, which is in Area A, which is under um, ostensibly Palestinian civil and military um, security control. Um, but the IDF was conducting a raid there, which they do on a not infrequent basis. Um, and she was with a group of journalists. They were all wearing press vests and helmets, identifying them as members of the press um, when she was shot and killed. Um, and eyewitnesses at the scene in video and audio analysis, um, the outlets like CNN and the Washington Post have completed, um, indicate that the shot came from where the Israeli soldiers were about 600 feet from Shireen and the other journalists. So how did the international community respond to her death? Initially, Israel said that the shot came from probably Palestinians. Um, that went directly in, contra- in contrast to what eyewitnesses at the scene had said. Um, Israel then walked that back over the course of a couple of days and eventually kind of landed that Israel could have, an Israeli soldier could have shot her um, and said it would open a, an investigation. And then a couple of days later, they kind of backtracked on that and said that because this was an active conflict zone, they weren't going to investigate, um, open a criminal investigation into the incident. Um, reaction, other... Otherwise, internationally has been kind of mixed. In the U.S., um, there's been letter, a letter, I think there were 55 signatories on it, from members of Congress calling on the FBI and the State Department to investigate her death because she is an American citizen. The FBI does have jurisdiction um, and the ability to investigate. Um, and we'll get into more of what the State Department said recently, I'm sure, um, earlier this week. Um, but that's kind of where the U.S. reaction came from. 
And I know several major national and international news agencies and even the UN office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights have all concluded that Israeli forces were responsible for her death. So, so Greg, how has the Israeli government responded to, to those conclusions? Well, they still continue to deny that any sort of conclusion, conclusive response can be made, and they have yet to open up a criminal investigation. And that seems increasingly likely, given the State Department's recent statement, which I know you're going to bring up in a second. Um, And also, you know, we get this message consistently from the Israelis um, that, well, okay, you know, Palestinian terrorist, active military, you know, operation. So it's deflecting the fact that what were Israelis doing there in the first place? This is not Israeli territory. What's the larger context here of one group of people ruling over another who doesn't have citizenship, who doesn't have any voice, who, who can't you know exercise their fundamental human rights? And so I think it's important when we talk about these incidents like um, the killing of Shirin Abu Akleh to also you know, not just pin everything on this one instant, but to look at the larger context. And there is a situation here of brutal rule over civilians over decades based on who they are. And that's the context in which Shireen Abwakla was killed. Greg, I think that's such an important piece to bring up the bigger question of why. Why was this happening in the first place? And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later, as well as the, the use of language in describing the events of, you know, the Israeli defense forces were fighting Palestinian militants in Janin. And so it's, you know, this this normal act of combat where that why why do we believe that this is a normal occurrence is the question. Um, but I want to bring us back to, to the U.S. and how those of us on the call who are American citizens um, or listening to this call who are American citizens, where they have an influence. This past week, actually, the U.S. State Department released a statement on Monday, July 4th, sharing the results of its investigation into her killing determining officially that the evidence is inconclusive that uh, Israeli forces were responsible for her death. But it also states, interestingly, that, quote, gunfire from IDF positions was likely responsible, end quote, for Abu Akhla's killing, but that there was, quote, no reason to believe that this was intentional, but rather the result of tragic circumstances, end quote. So, folks, what are your reactions to this announcement by the State Department? Gideon Levy wrote a pretty scathing piece in Haaretz um, this week where he was basically saying, like, this is the most impressive analysis of a bullet that I've ever seen. The fact that you can um, divine, like, a shooter's intent from looking at the bullet that was fired. Um, So I think that it just... To me, it just kind of seems ridiculous that we took a look at the bullet and were able to conclude that this was unintentional. Um, And I know that that's shared by many other people, but that was my first reaction to it. Well, Sharon, I want to go a step further. I mean, I think this statement is so emblematic of decades of absurdity around this conflict. Like the idea the idea that the Biden administration, which came in to say that its foreign policy was going to be based on human rights, the idea that anyone could sort of divine the intent when they don't even, they're saying, well, we can't conclude anything, but we know if it wasn't Israeli, it was an accident. You know, that's what the statement basically says. Like how absurd that is. That shows you very clearly that there is something rotten in Denmark. And so my first reaction to this, I thought I'd seen everything with this, you know, with politics and politicizing every little detail here. It was just 
I was incredulous and I was angry. I mean, I was under no illusion, under no illusions that President Biden was, you know, absolutely committed to human rights agenda internationally or domestically. But if you had any question that something's off in our relationship to Israel-Palestine, look at that statement and look at that one clause. That is proof positive right there. There is no way anyone could divine any kind of intent, especially when they say we don't know, like, you know, who actually did this. This is absolutely crazy and it's shameful yeah and if anyone was wondering why um the palestinian authority wouldn't hand over the bullet and palestinians had no trust in either an israeli or an american investigation there we go this is the evidence yet once again that the american administration is not going to be an impartial uh mediator or observer of anything that goes on here even when it relates to its own citizens, even when it's an American citizen, because they're Palestinian first. And just like when a Palestinian American comes to the Israeli uh, airport and lands here, they are treated as Palestinian first. The American administration just reiterated that stance and said, this person is Palestinian first. And in that um, equation, Israel has the right to do whatever it wants, and we are going to stand behind it in full force. And so there's been lip service paid to human rights and this, the Secretary of State called up the Abu Akhle family. But, but this statement really is just, you know, pulls, pulls void any kind of trust in an American administration that's going to be equal handed or, or impartial or even partial towards its American citizens if they're Palestinians in this conflict. So what's interesting about this statement is that it, it both names the incident as an accident and then in the same paragraph, quote, urges accountability for Shireen's killing. What does that even mean in the context of this statement when when you're you know effectively saying we we're not going to hold anyone accountable, but we urge accountability? What, how how do we anticipate the Israeli military to respond to that kind of to that kind of statement? Is there going to be any accountability for Shireen's killing? Oh, none. We know that. Like, I mean, it's it's lip service to ha- human rights, lip service to accountability. Excuse my language. Total, complete bullshit. But, you know, sometimes you just like, how can you say anything else about this statement? The irony is they released it on July 4th, Independence Day, right? American Independence Day. And this was the supposed investigation, a total sham investigation that just took a matter of hours to conclude that they couldn't conclude anything, except that if an Israeli did it, they didn't mean to do it. It was a tragic accident, right? Um, so like on July 4th, Independence Day, State Department officials who released that, they wanted as little attention as possible on this because they knew what a sham it was. So no accountability. But there's something else that was in that statement that I think is really important for our listeners to pay attention to. It said, you know, look, it must be noted that this Israeli soldiers were there, you know, after a series of terrorist attacks by, you know, Islamic Jihad militants. Nobody on this call who all committed to nonviolence and combating the scourges of terrorism, no matter who commits them or against who, is going to defend 
any terrorist acts. But I want to note in sort of this Orwellian doublespeak that is coming from our State Department and our government out there. I want you to pay attention there because what they're saying basically is, well, Israel had a right to be there. There's no accountability for Shireen Abu Akhla's death, but there needs to be accountability. It's, it's furthering a really problematic narrative that paints all Palestinians, including American citizens, um, as terrorists, which is exactly what this administration and previous administrations, both Republican and Democrat, have done. And so they're just they're they're putting some accountability there. The accountability is on Palestinians who are just intrinsically terrorist, who, despite the fact that they have no control over their lives, they can't even drive from Janine to Ramallah without going through checkpoints. They don't have citizenship rights. They don't like whatever, you know, all of these basic human rights that they lack that. But, you know, at the end of the day, there should be accountability and the accountability for should be for terrorists. And the way we define terrorists is not based on horrific acts of violence that are against civilians, but based, you know, on who they are. And in this case, Palestinians. And maybe I'm reading a little bit in the lines here, but I want to, you know, highlight that's very much how this is received throughout much of the world and why and why so few Palestinians have any confidence whatsoever, as Jack said, in the U.S. ever being fair, honest, um, or living up to the supposed values that we, you know, we champion like freedom, democracy, and human rights. Yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely, you know, this assumption that because of those acts that all Palestinians are responsible and any act of, against, you know, Palestinian community is justified. And and that's a really important point to, to bring out, Greg. I also want to, I want to ask a question, and that's, in relation to how people, how Israeli, the Israeli government and the Palestinian uh, government have responded to this statement, both communities are upset with it. No one's happy with it. And I think it can be really easy for Americans to see that and say, okay, well, there's then probably a statement that runs the middle. Like if no one's happy, it's probably closer to the truth. How do we, how would you respond to someone who would, who would see the reaction and, and say, okay, well, if, if we're kind of in the middle, does that feel like peace? What would you say to, to someone responding that way? I mean, politics is a game and it's a game that's played at the expense of so many people's lives and livelihoods. The world simply does not have to be the way it is. It can be better for more people. That's why we're on this call. That's why you're listening is we want to make it better for more people. But the default in this political game of obfuscation and communication for power, you know, oftentimes people will like, oh, no, we're so sorry. This is terrible. They'll put up a fight because they know if they like say, oh, yeah, that's the best statement ever. You know, people who are paying attention are going to dismiss that. But if you if you have an issue, if you complain, doesn't you know, but look, what did the statement actually do? The statement mirrored what Israeli leaders said hours after the killing. At first, they, you know, they put more blame on the Palestinians. They said it was likely Palestinian militants. But then they walked that back when the video footage and all the audio emerged. And so this statement basically says what, you know, Israel, um, the Israeli Defense Forces, IDF, was was saying, you know, within 24 hours after the attack that, look, you know, it's inconclusive. It possibly may have been. But if it was us, it was an accident. And but, you know, Islamic terrorists, Palestinian terrorists. So there's no way that, you know, I think that most Israelis, at least part of the establishment, and I mean, you know, I'm speaking about the government here and government officials who are putting this messaging out are actually upset with the statement. They got everything they want. And quite frankly, you know, I've been observer and working on this for many years. It, I thought this statement from the State Department was particularly shocking. They didn't need to go that far. And yet they did. Well, I, you know, Palestinians are obviously, you know, have 
ample reason to be frustrated and just disgusted with this statement because it's part of a larger story and particularly around you know the freedom of press and and just basic human rights in the region and i'm I'm curious to hear, Jack, from you about the larger story behind this, because it's not just about Shireen Abu Akhlet and, and, you know, this one-off tragedy, right? It's part of a larger story. Can you say more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's been other journalists that have been killed, um, particularly from Gaza uh, in 2018 and 2008, and, um, you know, across the, the, the life of this conflict, there's been Palestinian journalists that have been killed. There's been Palestinian journalists that have been injured and, and fired at and beaten up during their their official duty. Um, some that have been shot um, and wounded. Uh, so so it's not anything, you know, it's not anything that, that Palestinians don't know. I guess what is is kind of apparent from this statement is that we have to really um, look at this this equation of equating all Palestinians as terrorists and and the real work of peacemaking and what we try to do at Telos is to bring people to really see not just the conflict and not but Palestinians as human beings as people and oftentimes as we have seen from this statement and as we see from a lot of the Israeli government's action towards Palestinians in the West Bank and Palestinian journalists included, is that these people, these aren't these people are fighters first. They're terrorists. They're, and so this human label is not is not attributed. And what I mean by that is, again, the 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 IDF, the Israeli military, has a right to go into a town and shoot at people it doesn't it doesn't agree with or like or, or perceives as a threat. But if the same thing were to happen the other way around, and that's what it means to, to hold people equal, is to put yourselves in the other people's shoes and to say, would I necessarily agree with this happening in, in my hometown, in my neighborhood, um, if I were a Palestinian in Jenin? Um, and, and, that's, and we haven't gotten there. We, a lot of people that are viewers and observers in the West that look at this conflict still see it through that lens that, okay, she's a journalist in the quote-unquote war zone. This is a military fighting quote-unquote terrorists. Um, and, and because it's, it's viewed through that lens that there are, there are good guys and bad guys. Um, and, and until we can get over that, until we can get over over that hurdle, only then will we start to see these journalists and these hu other Palestinians as human beings and worthy of accountability. Yeah, what you say, I think, is so important. And um, you know, to, to I think there's a little quip that we sometimes use at Telos that communicates this point well, and that is that unfortunately you don't have human rights until people see you as human. And Palestinians have been cast as less than human, as other people have um, throughout the world, throughout our history, as the Jewish people um, have. And, you know, why anti-Semitism is still a scourge that we must combat alongside this fight for the freedom and equality of Palestinians. So this notion of like humanizing people, it can feel really airy-fairy. But, the, but what Jack, what you're saying is so critical here, and I think it points to something all of us can do on this call, is to recognize the power of stories, the power of our testimony, the power of just connecting with other human beings and making sure that our friends and family who may 
unwittingly because we just receive these things they're like oh palestinian suicide bomber terrorists like most of us receive this uncritically we've never thought about it giving them other models other examples to see wait a second these people are just like me and you they were just born into a different situation and that situation is horrible and you know what it's not over there like they're living in that virtual prison in part because of our tax dollars and because of the attitudes of our pastors, our members of Congress, the people in our community. So these stories, they may feel not powerful, but this is the fundamental thing that will allow us to really realize in Mother Teresa's words that we belong to each other because we are each other. We are all human, first and foremost. Greg, I think that's such an important point to bring up about the fact that those stories will shape how we react to these events and whether we demand change and accountability and justice from a larger policy level. You know, I was in, I've been in the South with Telos uh, many times in the past month and the moments where you see political action and change happening are when a majority of you know the nation band together in coalition and demand change in response to something that they say no more to this, right? And I think that you bringing up how much agency we have is so essential and I want to have a larger conversation about that but particularly for those on the call who are american citizens we have so much agency to to shape not only laws and policies here in the u.s but how the u.s engages overseas right you know so much of biden's foreign policy that he spoke about on on the campaign trail was about human rights and that really inspired a lot of people and yet we see this you know this about face and in some ways about this protection of human rights particularly in israel palestine but I also want to bring up that this statement is being released in the context of the larger trip that Biden has taken to the Middle East, in which he's not only visiting Israel and Palestine, but also Saudi Arabia, and particularly the Saudi Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And I see it as a not-so-coincidental piece of political calculation that prior to that visit, which Biden said would never happen until the crown prince was held accountable for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, that the U.S. releases this statement removing accountability for a state-involved killing of a journalist in a different nation. The timing of that is a bit impeccable. So, Greg, how much do you think this statement had to do with Biden's upcoming visit to the region? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, that may be coincidental. And I do think, you know, to be to be fair, um, while I think Shireen was likely targeted as journalists, like maybe not for herself, they may not have known who she was, but given all the, the you know, accounts of the, the killing, she wasn't lured to, you know, an embassy and dismembered by a team of people who were ordered by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia to do exactly just that, which is what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. And so um, I don't want to draw so many, but I mean, it, it is interesting that you note that. I think the bigger story for me right here comes back to what's our role in the world, whether we're Democrats or Republicans. As anyone who knows me knows I'm progressive in my politics and um, not, you know, and some members of Telos are, some are conservative, whatnot. So, I, you know, my criticism of the Biden administration comes from somebody who voted for President Biden as a Democrat. And I don't understand, like, how we as the United States, whether domestically or internationally expect to be any kind of spokesperson or voice through a moral lens, which is something that's important to the world. Human rights 
is fundamentally important. Otherwise, we descend back to this struggle of might makes right. Um, and I, not that we ever sort of like got past it. I don't want to tell some wishy-washy, you know, story about we can return back to the time when human rights were protected. They've never been protected and we've done and do horrible things as Americans in the world. But I still believe that we as Americans have been casting a different vision um, and we are unique in the way that we've de developed um, certain principles of democracy um, that are being tested at home right now. But the idea that Biden, you know, talks about accountability and said he would never meet with Crown Business and it turned, you know, complete about face. We saw this before with Democrats too, President Obama, you know, uh, uh, during the um, Arab Spring and the Egyptian Revolution, some, you know, went against Mubarak and then Sisi comes into power, another dictatorial figure. And he's like, oh yeah, never mind. Cold, hard politics are bigger, you know, concerns here. Now, you could have made that determination. Yeah, or the red lines of the chemical weapons in Syria, right? That were never, exactly. was never pulled through. Exactly. We've seen all of these before. And I'm sorry, like, you know, you don't have to put those big high-minded statements out there if you're, you're not going to live up to them. And if you are serious about them, then by golly, like, don't just be like, oh, never mind, human rights. They were a great idea. Our human, you know, our foreign policy is about human rights. Oh, never mind. You can just assassinate journalists, and then we've got these big business deals, and we need to, you know, worry about the flow flow of oil. I'm not saying he should have. Yeah, you know, what I'm saying is that statecraft is complex, and you need to think this through. Unfortunately, on the left, it's been sort of this wishy-washy thing about like, yes, this is wrong, so we'll do this. And that doesn't help the larger cause if we're really strategically unfocused on human rights. And that's why we need people on this call. And that's why we need to get really smart about how do we build power to hold power to account if we believe that a different world is possible, one in which more of us can flourish and one in which more human beings have agency. We need to be able to hold our leaders to account and be able to speak out to them and say, hey, no, <laughs> not on our dime. You don't get to do that. And right now, our voices are marginal. We need to be really strategic about how we bring these marginal voices, these marginalized voices that recognize that another way is possible and advantageous. Um, and the ways to do that, the principles and practices of peacemaking from the center, I mean, from the margins of society to the center. So, Sharon, I want to draw you in there and, and ask you specifically, what are some of those ways that we can move our voice from the margin to the center to support human rights? Greg is mentioning very powerfully how we we must hold our leaders to account right we and we have the agency to do so so i'm wondering do you have any suggestions for our listeners how how can we put pressure on the u.s government to hold the israeli military and government accountable for shireen's killing but also to to you know support human rights in in that part of the world and abroad i think one of the things that i've been that i was just thinking about while greg was talking is that I'm sure that one of the reasons that Biden is willing to meet with MBS right now is because of how high gas prices are in the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and the OPEC countries um, do have some control over how much oil they can produce and potentially drive um, those prices down. And so Biden wants to be seen as doing everything he can to help the American people at the gas pump. Um, and so I think that's getting a little bit off topic, but I think it's helpful to understand, like, if we we need to not just be looking at one issue. And it's, I mean, I don't want to downplay um, how difficult it is with how high gas prices are um, on people who rely on cars to get to work or who have to fill up 
trucks because that's their their job is driving across the country in them. I mean, I'm not downplaying that at all, but I am just saying that if we want our leaders to be beholden to these human rights principles, we need to make sure that they know that those are as important to us as these much more like practical day-to-day concerns um, that we have. And so just making consistently um, talking to your voting representatives in Congress or um, writing to the State Department, it feels like a drop in the bucket, but people and our representatives need to know that we care about these things. Um, we keep saying this, but Shireen was an American citizen, um, and that doesn't mean that she's any more important than any other Palestinian who's been killed as part of the occupation. But that does mean that we can remind our leaders that they have an obligation to investigate her death to a much greater degree than they do for a non-American citizen. The more we can start bringing these stories into the center of this conversation and help people understand and humanize Palestinians, like we were talking about earlier on this call. And we saw that happen. The New York Times had a headline right after Shireen was killed that was like, um, Palestinian American journalist dies. Like, that was their headline, which is crazy because she was shot and killed. Um, And because of public outcry, they changed that um, headline and changed how they were talking about it. So holding journalists to account is also important. Sharon, I think what you're saying is so important for us to remember in these moments because it can all, you know, often feel as if there's so little we can do that has impact. I can tell you, you know, have worked on these issues for decades the climate is changing. We're still getting these crazy Orwellian statements from our State Department, but they're getting pushback from all sorts of places that they never had before. The New York Times put out this crazy headline. They put they got pushback. And to their credit, um, they and a number of other agencies did full investigations and concluded what, you know, um, that the eyewitness testimony was likely correct and people were not lying and that she was shot and they weren't in an active um, conflict, uh, uh, firefight or anything like that. Um, so so I think it's important to remember that it can feel in the moment like, what am I doing, like calling this person or sharing this story or writing this treat? But it, these things actually have impact. You need to raise your voices. And the second thing here is I, I think that what we're talking about is important on Israel-Palestine, but it's important at home, too. DCAT, you mentioned that you've been going, you know, you've been to the South a few times over the last few weeks with with Telos. And one of the things that I've been learning about there is our mass incarceration system, which is bonkers. I mean, anyone who's spent any time looking at it, the amount of people we have incarcerated, the money it costs, the destruction on communities, like it's actually like we're taking taxpayer money and using that to make our communities less safe and harming like you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the process wasting, you know, billions of dollars. And so we've built this system up, which, you know, feeds some special interests and whatnot. But like, you know, the, a lot of people are the fuel for the system and it just makes absolutely no sense. But what sustains some of these unjust systems are these stories of dehumanization. And yeah, like we're all scared of criminals. We need police to actually protect us from crime and real criminals in our communities. No, I, I don't think any sane person is disputing that. 
But, you know, the, the point being that um, we, we tell these stories that just like cast these whole neighborhoods and all these people and just one big brush completely dehumanizing them. And this fear allows us to like write Palestinians off for decades or entire segments of American society offered and this mass incarceration system to just blossom and flourish at the expense of so many people's lives and ultimately not just our tax dollars, but our safety as well. So the idea of listening to these stories, really understanding the reality and then learning how to tell them and share them, it may feel a little like bit not enough. And I know there's a lot more to do and there is, and I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't, but I, I just want to name that on this call. This has impact. We see it. And so I want to encourage you don't turn away, turn in, speak up. It may be difficult. Your voice may shake, but it has impact. That's so helpful, Greg. I'm just reflecting back that, you know, stories and culture matter and language really matters. You know, as we're seeing in the statement, as it's pointing out and the stories that we share and the way we describe human beings that that really shapes us. So thank you for the suggestions. I'm going to share some of those suggestions and resources in our show notes, which I encourage folks to look at after the show that's all we got for today's show thanks so much for listening folks as always read and share the principles of practices of peacemaking you can find them on our website follow telos on instagram in twitter and facebook at the telos group and if you're enjoying the podcast become a monthly donor to telos and that's how all of this happens with that we'll sign off and see you next time thanks for listening